into the abyss. I was bewildered, in a state of disbelief, and what I most remember about my journey to Majdanek is that people, adults, children, healthy, sick, old, were in despair. People died in those wagons. Even under those conditions, though, people were helping each other, taking care of the children and the elderly. If somebody was dying, they made a little room for them on the floor. Some people tried to break holes in the high windows for air, and others cut the floorboards so they could jump out. We were sure we were going to Treblinka, and if we had, I wouldn't have been able to write this memoir because almost everyone died at Treblinka. But by this point, in 1943, the Germans were losing the war and they needed slave labor. So they took some people to Majdanek to work instead. We arrived in Majdanek the first week of May 1943. When we got off the train, we were led into a large field and selections where people were separated. Men from women, children from parents began right away. My father instructed me to go with him, with the men, and to say when asked that I was five years older than I actually was. He must have understood that young children were going to be killed because they were often too weak to work. I was tall for my age, so the Germans believed me when I said I was 16. His advice saved me, and besides, I'm a religious Jew and I believe in providence. I was standing with my father when suddenly I saw my sister. She was standing with the children, and then she saw my mother standing with the women, and she ran to her. That was the last time I saw my mother and my sister. From that moment on, I forgot everything I ever knew about my sister. That boy who walked around Warsaw Ghetto with his eyes like lenses and his mind the film that recorded everything and could, if it were possible, make you see all the scenes that he saw there, that boy forgot everything about his sister. This man, with his photographic memory of almost everything and everybody he ever came across, has forgotten how his sister looked. When I think about Sabina, all I can see is her blonde braid with a ribbon in it. I cannot remember anything about her from before the war. We lived in the same room as small children, slept together, played, quarreled, smiled, and were happy. We lived in that little room together for almost three years in the Warsaw Ghetto. I remember so many details about our family life before the war, but I have only snippets of memory about her. I remember that my sister had beautiful blonde hair that she wore in braids, and that she had magnificent ribbons for her hair, but nothing else. I can't conjure up her face. I can't conjure up her body or other physical markers. All I can see is her back and her blonde braid. I suppose I have blanked out everything about her and about what I felt when she was killed. Even to this day, it is difficult for me to talk about her. There was only one time when I was in Tresenstadt near the end of the war 
that I suddenly started crying, and when someone asked me why, I responded that it was because my sister had died, but she had died in 1943 in Majdanek, and this was 1945. After standing in that field for quite a while, the Germans chased the men into a barracks, where there were tables in the middle of the room. We were ordered to strip naked and throw all our clothes into a wooden bin. Then we were instructed to run, holding our hands high over our heads, towards a man with a white coat, an SS doctor, who was directing everyone and pushing people to the right or to the left. I found out later that he was sending people either to immediate death or to life in the camp. I was pushed to the right, and then we were running, running, and the Germans were shouting, Schnell, schnell, fast, fast. My father was running in front of me, and I came into a room where I was thrown into a huge vet built into the floor that was divided into two parts and filled with strong disinfectant. If you didn't submerge your head, the couple would knock you over the head and hit you until you went under completely. When I came out of the vet, every orifice in my body was on fire. Then we were forced into another room with showers, and I thought, well, I might as well say my prayers and wait for the guests to come. But water came out instead, and that washed the chemical off a little and made it burn a little less. We weren't giving anything to dry off with before we were sent running to another barracks where prisoners were dishing out striped prison clothes with numbers on them and clogs. Then we were pushed outside at another end into the camp itself. Once I got outside, my father wasn't in front of me anymore. As I looked for him, I saw the men with the boils who my father had brought to sleep in our kitchen in the ghetto. I went up to him and said, I'm looking for my father. Have you seen my father? He didn't say a word. He just lifted his head to heaven. And I realized that my father had been murdered. I knew it immediately. That was the first week of May 1943. I was not yet 11 years old when my mother, my sister, and my father were murdered on the same day. The day that we all arrived in Majdanek, my father was 38 years old, my mother 35, and my sister almost 11. I cried a bit when I realized they were all gone, but for a long time I couldn't really understand that they were gone forever. I only really accepted that they were dead after the war. Until then, I suppose I was hoping that they had been taken somewhere else, to another camp maybe, and were still alive. To this day, I still struggle with the reason I cried. Did I cry because I lost my father? Did I cry because I didn't die? I will never resolve that question. I would like to think that I cried because I lost my parents and not because I was alive. From that moment on, life became a matter of survival. My survival instincts kicked in and it was like I put blinkers on and did what I had to do to survive. Also, as a child, my brain was not sophisticated enough to look back 
I was living in a kind of cocoon. I didn't have a past to draw on and was developing as I went along. I had learned in the ghetto to live from day to day and from minute to minute. You got into a kind of rhythm where you don't look right or left, you focus only on the minute. That is your existence, your reality. All that matters is staying alive. That skill helped me survive in the extreme moments. But unfortunately, in the long run, it has had detrimental effects. Majdanek was very clean because the concentration camp commander was extremely particular. We were given a long harangue on cleanliness and what would happen if we weren't clean. We would, of course, be punished, and everybody knew that for the slightest infraction, you could be sent to the guest chamber. We didn't know there were guest chambers when we first arrived on the field in Majdanek. But as soon as I talked with other people, they told me what was going on there. Within a few hours of my arrival, I knew exactly what was happening. I will never forget my first morning at Majdanek. When I woke up, I saw three young people hanging from a rafter. I assumed that they had committed suicide to avoid being sent to the guest chambers. Each barracks had a block elder, block elder or supervisor who was in charge of the barracks and he had one or two capos. The capos were mostly German criminals who had been sent there to serve their time. They wore armbands that said kapo on them and had regular clothes instead of the striped clothing of the Jewish prisoners. Our block elterster was sadistic. I was told that at night the block elterster and kapos got drunk and went into the barracks looking for young, good-looking boys to sodomize. Even after I heard that, I didn't realize what it meant. I was an innocent Hasidic boy who didn't know about sex, let alone that something like sodomy even existed. It wasn't until much, much later that I understood that a blockaltester was a violent pedophile who would have his way with these boys, choke them to death, and then have them hanged. And then at the roll call, the next morning, the couples would take their bodies outside and say they would die of natural causes or committed suicide. Even though I didn't understand exactly what was going on at the time, I knew I had to keep out of the way of the block elterster. I lay in my bunk at night, shivering, praying I wouldn't be next. We were woken up at dawn and made to do exercises a sort of calisthenics, where we had to jump up and down. We wore round striped hats, which they made us put on and take off. Mutze on and mutze up and mutze on and mutze up, over and over again. This was part of a game they played, and they were very good at playing games with us. Whenever an assessment came around, we had to take our hats off to them like soldiers do in the army. When we finished our rituals, the couple hurried us up to get outside for the appel, the roll call, where we would sometimes stand for hours until they counted everyone and had selections, looking for people who were weak or sick to send them to the guest chambers. At the appel, the Germans also assigned people to work groups. As always, they played games with this 
too. In order to confuse us, they would sometimes say they needed electricians or plumbers or Ibet's commanders work groups, and when people stepped forward, they would send them to the guest chamber instead. Other inmates suggested not to step out when they called for people to be part of a work detail, because you never knew if you were actually being called to work or being taken to the guest chamber. Even if you weren't sent to the guest chamber, the work details could be deadly. The Ukrainian guards took the prisoners out and used them to do hard labor for which machines were needed. For example, men were harnessed together to push the heavy rollers to compact the earth. Today, if you go to Majdanek, you can still see the rollers there. The guards beat people to make them work harder and harder, and always brought dead people back at the end of the day. As I mentioned, it was a matter of survival to be as inconspicuous as possible. To be visible meant someone would notice you and something bad would happen to you. At the entrance and on the side of our barracks was a little patch of garden with flowers and whitewashed stones. And when the guards were shouting and allocating work details, I decided to make myself busy fiddling with the flowers and the stones as if I had been ordered to work there in the garden. When the blockhalter would come and ask him what I was doing, I would say the capo had asked me to clean the garden patch. If the capo had asked me, I would say the blockhalter asked me to do it. I don't know how I knew to do that or why. I somehow knew automatically that it could help me. In my Danek, I was in a kind of cloud. We were always in the shadow of the guest chamber, and that obliterated any other thoughts from our minds. I was always concerned with whether or not I was going to be selected for the guest chamber or selected to go to a work group, and always thinking of how to get out of either option. My existence in that camp is, I suppose, something I want to bury deep in my mind. Unfortunately, I cannot forget the salient points. One particular day, when I was lying on the ground, making myself busy, fiddling with the flowers and the stones, a couple who I had never seen before approached and asked me what I was doing. I remember exactly what he looked like and what he was wearing, a three-quarter length jacket, his hands in the side pockets, breeches like riding pants and shiny high boots. I told him that the blockhalter had ordered me to look after the garden and clean around it. I was lying there with my backside up like an animal, trying to make myself invisible. And then, without a word, he began to kick my back with his pointed boot. He kicked me hard, many times, and then walked away. I was in pain, bleeding. I still suffer from that beating to this day. After I had been in Majdanek for about two or three months, one morning at Appel, around the end of July, the guards asked for plumbers and electricians. Now, I knew it was dangerous to step out, but there I was, 11 years old, and I stepped out. Maybe my father was watching me from heaven. 
I always felt in the ghetto and everywhere else that my father was watching over me, just as he had in the last minutes of his life told me to say I was five years older than I was, which saved me. Quite a few other people stepped out with me. Who knows why they did? Perhaps by that time they couldn't take it anymore and figured they might as well go to the guest chamber as endure this torture anymore. In any case, when enough people had been collected, we were taken to a barrack where we had to undress. That was terrifying in itself because we knew what it meant when told to get naked. You were going to the guest chamber. Instead, a few men in white coats with stethoscopes came in and each one of us had to go over to them to be inspected. They thoroughly checked our lungs and our hearts and then sent people to either one side of the room or the other. Everyone on my side was to get dressed. I don't remember the exact sequence of what happened next, but our striped clothes with the numbers on them were taken away and we were given different clothes, ordinary clothes and shoes, items obviously taken from dead people. Then the guards took us to the trains. They put us in cattle cars, but this time they did not cram us in. We had room to sit on the floor and we were given food for the journey, a piece of sausage, cheese and some bread. Then we set off. We didn't know where we were going, but we were going.